today as we begin into chapter 12 and verse 1, and we'll study together through verse 12. I'm actually going to begin the reading today at the end of chapter 11. Uh, Today's passage is closely connected to what we studied last week uh, and coming on the heels of this denunciation uh, of the Pharisees and the lawyers and their hypocrisy, uh, where Jesus will turn again to his own people and warn them about a different kind of hypocrisy. But it comes uh, together as the scribes and the Pharisees are seeking to put Jesus to death, to catch him in something he may say. And there is a warning here uh, for all God's children. And so we're going to find today in Luke chapter 12, beginning beginning in verse 1, you can find that uh, on page 871, if you've not yet found it in our cart Bibles. Uh, But Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and reading... Uh, to verse 12, and and again, uh, beginning that passage, uh, the reading in verse 53. But before we read that together, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing in prayer. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father, we pray that you would pour out the blessing of your word upon your people. Having spoken to us, uh, finally, through your Son, we pray that you would give us your spirit, that we would understand your word, that we would understand your warnings, that we would believe your promises, that we would follow your commands. Help us, O Lord, to be your people and to trust your word more even than we trust ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, uh, Luke's Gospel, beginning in chapter 11, verse 53. And as he, that is Jesus, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. The one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. In 1989, Daniel Day-Lewis played the part of an Irish artist by the name of Christy Brown. It was in the film called My Left Foot. Perhaps you've seen it. It was autobiographical. It was a true story. Christy Brown was 
an artist who suffered from a very young age uh, from cerebral palsy. He taught himself uh, to write and to paint with the only limb that he could control, his left foot, hence the name of his autobiography and also of the film. Daniel Day-Lewis took on this role, and if you know anything about Daniel Day-Lewis, you have probably heard the stories that uh, he's one of those intense method actors. He's one of the people that, uh, to get into the mind of the character, to, to feel the motivation of whatever role he's playing, he tries to embody, tries to live out the life of whoever it is he's portraying, both on the set and off the set, to really get into the mindset of this person, and that's what he did with Christy Brown. And so he spent uh, eight weeks before filming in a cerebral palsy clinic to try to comprehend the condition. During the shooting, he confined himself to a wheelchair, whether he was on the set or at home. Every day when he showed up, when someone would drive him there, he required that the uh, film crew would take him out of his car. And at the end of every day, he required that they would put him back in his car. He taught himself uh, to write, to type, and to paint with his own left foot. Uh, he insisted on being called Christy even when he was off the set, and he had all of his meals spoon-fed to him for the entire time that they were filming uh, the, the movie. Uh, his dedication paid off. The following year, he won his first actor, uh, his first Oscar, rather, for Best Actor because he went to these extreme lengths to understand this person, to take on a, a persona of somebody that he was not, and that's the kind of thing that gets you acclaim in Hollywood. That kind of dedication, that, that kind of uh, performance, but the performance that Daniel Day-Lewis put in to my left foot uh, really pales in comparison to the dedication necessary to maintain religious hypocrisy. It's not just something that people do for a matter of a few months. It's not just something that they do to put on and then to take off. It's something that becomes a way of life. And that was what the Pharisees learned when Jesus was with them in the dinner party that we studied last week. When he denounced them for the fact that uh, they cleaned the outside of their lives and yet they ignore the filth of sin that festered inside. Maybe they were so used to their hypocrisy that, that it wasn't very difficult for them anymore. Maybe they didn't even notice it. Maybe they, uh, they became so natural in living a double life that they didn't even see the hypocrisy that was there, but Jesus pointed it out. Here they are, proclaiming to love the law of God, and yet they're setting this legal trap, trying to catch Jesus in something he might say that though they can, so that they can uh, put him to death in the same way that their fathers put to death the prophets before him. And if anybody could win the award... For the best religious actor, perhaps it would have been the Pharisees. But you need to know that there is more than one way to be a hypocrite. And there are some hypocrites who use hypocrisy to appear more religious. There are other hypocrites who use hypocrisy to appear more normal. There's a kind of hypocrisy that downplays religion, actually that says, well, I can have this faith in my heart, and outwardly I can live in a way so that nobody would suspect it, so that I can make it through this life and not have the friction that comes with being united to Christ. There's a kind of hypocrisy that would want to downplay our connection to him because it's just, quite frankly, safer that way. And this is the hypocrisy that Jesus is warning his own disciples about this morning. 
says in verse 1, in the meantime, while they were seeking to trap him, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's like leaven. It's like yeast in a loaf of bread. And you can't see it working, but it's in there. It's creating these pockets to make the loaf seem more substantial than it actually is, to puff it up, to give it a little bit more body, a little bit more uh, structure. But this hypocrisy that Jesus is speaking about today is not about attempting to be uh, puffed up. It's not about attempting to be outwardly religious. You notice this hypocrisy is in the context of trying to seem outwardly acceptable. The crowds are, are flocking now, so many that they're trampling one another, says Luke, and yet they're still lying in wait for Jesus. And Jesus knows that it's only going to be a matter of time before they take his disciples and they haul him before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, he says later in the passage. It's only going to be a matter of time before his own followers realize just how socially advantageous it might be to downplay their connection to Jesus. And he's telling them to beware. Beware the temptation to think you can believe one way and live another. Beware the temptation to try and save some face by denying the Savior. Jesus is calling them to live with their discipleship on full display no matter who might see it, no matter what they might face because of it. And that's still his call to people today. It's his call to us. That's his call to people in places where discipleship is more costly. Places like Indonesia where naming Christ, where following Christ might mean a loss of employment. It might mean imprisonment. It might mean mob violence. The stakes are lower for us, but it's the same call, isn't it? to live with our discipleship on full display, and yet we still wrestle with his temptation to live as closeted Christians, as though we can hide some aspect of our faith and make it through the world and we'll be just a little bit safer, just a little bit more comfortable. And Jesus tells us today to beware that kind of hypocrisy. There are a few ways that Jesus says we can, we can live in honest discipleship in this passage. I want to examine three of them together with you. For one, Jesus says that we can live as honest disciples when we expect full disclosure. That's the point of verses 1 through 3, that we ought to expect full disclosure. Verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This is the truth that breaks the power of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy only exists when it is hidden. As soon as it is exposed, it evaporates. And so Jesus is reminding us that we need to know that there is one day which uh, is coming where all hypocrisy will be uncovered. All of our facades will evaporate. We will be shown to be exactly who we are. You know, the New Testament concept of hypocrisy actually has its roots in acting in the Greek theater. It's a word that described the play actor who would who would take on, in, in that time, one actor, many different roles, and each time they put on a different role, they would, they would have a different mask with a different emotion, and they would switch characters on and off, and they could, they could move fluidly between all of these different personas, but there comes a time when the play is over and the masks have to be put away, and all that is left is the actor himself. 
Jesus is saying this is exactly what's going to happen. There's a day coming when all hidden hypocrisy is going to be seen for what it really is. Sometimes hypocrites are unmasked in this life. We've seen it. Lance Armstrong gives interview after interview. He makes statement after statement. He writes books. He, he stands up and he argues for himself. He says, I was never a part of any sort of doping scandal. And then the truth comes out and everybody knows. And, and he loses all seven of those Tour de France titles. And, and he's unmasked. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes the sexual predator is caught. And the crooked politician is exposed. And sometimes the student fails the class because it was found out that they were cheating. Sometimes that happens. But Probably far more often, the secrets that we have and the hypocrisies that we hold on to remain covered. Nobody ever knows. And we begin to fool ourselves that it will always be that way. That no one will ever know. That our, our sins and our, our secrets will never be exposed. And that's where hypocrisy lives. It lives behind that mask of, of deception. But Jesus is reminding us that no matter how short-sighted we might be now, we need to remember that God's judgment is coming. There is a day, says Paul in Romans 2, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Even now, as we wait for that day, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked, all are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is a challenge to root out those self-deceptions we are tempted to overlook. This is a challenge to see our hypocrisy the way that God sees it. Not as something that is self-contained and harmless and hidden, but something that, that looks like a blinking neon sign inviting the judgment of God. And Jesus is saying there is a day when it will all be uncovered. And even what you think you have hidden now is not all that hidden. There's coming a day when all secrets will be made known. Now, that's biblical truth. That's, that's basics of the faith. You already know that. So the question is, how does that help us to live as honest disciples? How does it help us to put away our hypocrisy? Well, it helps us when we remember that not only will the religious pretender one day be exposed, but one day Jesus' followers are going to be proclaimed for what they are. All of God's people will be revealed at some point. All of those hidden house churches in those countries where we send missionaries and we can't tell you where they're going, one day they will be known. One day they will stand and Christ himself will claim them. One day all the hidden things will be uncovered and we will find that exactly what we've been waiting for is come true, that he is the one who comes back to join his people to himself. One day, the professions of faith that in places like Indonesia, people are tempted to whisper and to hush, to teach to their children only slightly for fear that one of their children will go to school and say a word against Muhammad, and, and that will come back, and the parents will be tried for blasphemy, and terrible things will happen, and the family will be broken up. One day, even those professions of faith, those wonderful, glorious truths that we are sometimes tempted to hide for the way that people will think about us and look at us and what they might do to us, even those things will be declared as true for all to see. There will be no more covering. There will be no more secrets. Behold, he is coming, writes John. He's coming with the clouds. 
And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, come Lord Jesus, he concludes. That day is coming when Christ will return to claim those who cling to him. But if we're honest, while we wait, we're tempted with silent discipleship. And we do it because we know how unpopular our Christian hope is. Somebody asks, what is the purpose of it all? History and and humanity and and advance and, and all these things, what's it here for? And we know, in our culture at least, it might be different from Jesus' day, but we know the answers that are acceptable, don't we? No, history is about humanistic advance. Learning to make the world a better place. Learning to, uh, to work together to, to get rid of inequality and injustice. It's about striving for mutual acceptance. That's what it's all about, perhaps. Or maybe uh, history is about human achievement. About sitting back and, and just being in awe at the arts and the intellect that, that create the world that's around us, the waters that we swim in. Maybe it's about that, that unfettered optimism of, of scientific advance that will, that will banish all the problems of nature that we deal with now. Coronavirus and AIDS and every disease and every cancer will be done away with, and we'll live in this utopia that we've created for ourselves. Maybe that's what history is all about. Then again, maybe it's not about much of anything at all, is it? Maybe it's pointless. That's the answer. Maybe we're all just random collections, aggregations of of atoms hurtling toward the unavoidable, inexplicable, inexplicable heat death of the universe. Maybe it's all going to end in some great giant freeze. And maybe we're just waiting for that to happen. And you can choose any of those answers. Because you know that you can walk into any university, you can engage with just about any philosophy today, and those are all tolerable. You can pick any one you want, and that's fine. But the one that is not tolerated is the one that says that history is heading for the day when Christ will return, and men and women, boys and girls, will face the judgment. And Christ is coming back to gather his lambs to himself. And all those will see him, even those who pierced him. And the nations will wail on account of him. The day is coming that he's He's going to separate his sheep from his goats. There's a day, says 2 Peter chapter 3, when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Continues verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it can be tempting to hide that hope. Could you imagine what a conversation ender that would be? What are you looking forward to in the new year? I'm waiting for the day that the heavens will be burned up and the earth will be dissolved and all the works on it will be exposed and there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, what do you say to that? And so we we try to hide it. This is the grand truth of our faith and yet we go out into a world where we know how unacceptable it is and so we, we downplay. What are they going to think of me if, if I tell them that's what I'm looking forward to? 
You know, my kids are doing soccer. We've got this play going on. We've got this thing happening at work. It's going to be great. No. There's something bigger than that. And so we downplay, we minimize the promises that we're actually waiting for. It doesn't mean that we deny them outright. It doesn't mean that we say, no, 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 I'm not waiting for that. And maybe if you press me hard enough, I'll admit it, but, but maybe it's just the way that we change the tone when we talk to certain people. We just leave out a little bit. We don't have to tell them the whole truth, so help us God. We just tell them enough that they know where we're coming from and, and the rest of it, we'll, we'll just leave it to their imagination. And we fall into the temptation to downplay what we really believe in order to be considered intelligent and acceptable in a modern world. Folks, what is the word for that? It's hypocrisy. It's deception. It's duplicity. Deception for the sake of personal gain. We are called to a public profession that owns our faith, no matter how unpopular it might be. In fact, if you expect full disclosure, as these verses are teaching us, it actually becomes easier to own your faith. If you expect that these things are actually going to happen the way Christ has told us they are going to happen, then it becomes much easier because you're not waiting to be found out as a fraud. Oh, maybe I was waiting for the wrong thing. Maybe I was longing for the wrong thing. Maybe I had my heart set in the wrong direction. When you actually believe what you say you believe and live in that way, it makes it far easier. It makes you honest to admit that your grand desire is not some economic prosperity or a, a utopia or some miniature human achievement. Your hope is in the Lord who has promised no matter what men may think that he will come again and vindicate his people. And so brothers and sisters, expect full disclosure. Believe that what you believe about Christ is actually going to happen makes it far easier to live as an honest disciple in the world because you know that when he comes back, all secrets will be revealed. All hopes will be revealed as either true or false. And so hold on to what he said and expect that he will disclose at the end of days that that's exactly what was going to happen. So expect full disclosure. That's the first way we live as honest disciples. But secondly, we, we live with our discipleship on display if we're willing to fear God first. This is verses 4 through 7. Fear God first. Verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now there is a call to believe the Bible rather than the world. Jesus is telling us there are some people in this world and in this life whose power is so limited that they can only harm your body. They can only take away your breath. They can only remove your possessions. They can only destroy your earthly family. They can only burn down your house and your reputation. That's all they can do. And anybody in their right mind says, well, that's enough, isn't it? Are you kidding me? There are people that do that, and in places like Indonesia that we're praying for today, people endure that sort of thing. Isn't that enough that men have that sort of power? Isn't that enough to make us fearful of what they might do or what they might say or what they might think? Who in their right mind wouldn't be afraid of people who wield that kind of power? 
What exiled Jew would refuse to so much as bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol when there are open mouths of lions waiting? What kind of first century believer would publicly declare their faith in Jesus and risk the whips and the stones of the Jewish synagogue? What kind of crazy Roman Christian uh, would be so foolish as to refuse to burn their tiny pinch of incense and parrot back those words, Caesar is Lord? What kind of 20th century Korean Christian would dare to defy the iron fist of imperial Japan as they demanded the ceremonial bow to the Shinto idols? Who would do such a thing? Who would refuse such things? Those who have their priorities straight, says Jesus. Only one who believes that the God who created us has a greater power over our souls than any earthly empire ever could. And folks, you could multiply examples, you know it. Hundreds of thousands of times over every century in every continent in every place where God's people have been, there is some sort of threat And it's all just a variation of that original threat that came against Jesus. Pilate said, John chapter 19, Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? It comes to us in a milder form. It comes to us in the questions, What will men say of me? What will they think of me? What might they do to me? J.C. Ryle said, how often these little questions have turned the balance against the soul. How often these little questions have kept Christians bound hand and foot by sin and the devil, and thousands who would never hesitate to storm a breach or to face a lion dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends for their faith. Just these little questions, aren't they? But it's the threat. What will they do? What will they say? What will they think? What's the answer to that kind of threat, my friends? It's to get your priorities straight. It's to remember the one who wields the power of death and life, of hell and heaven. Jesus says, don't fear these who can only kill the body, but fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. He's not talking about Satan. Satan has no more power to cast you into hell than he has power to get himself out. Hell belongs to the Lord. He is the one who divides the sheep from the goats. He's the one who separates people into paradise or perdition. He is the one who gathers his lambs like a flock and casts the wicked into the eternal fire. He's the one who sits in judgment upon the earth, who will one day bring justice even against those who have spilled the blood of the saints. And it's not popular, but Jesus is warning us that if ever we want to live as honest disciples, we've got to live with a godly fear. We've got to have a reverence for God that drives us to please Him with our lives more than we try to protect ourselves. We've got to be like John Knox, in a sense. John Knox was that fiery reformer who brought the Reformation to Scotland. Interesting life, if you ever want to read about him. He spent about two and a half years on French galley ships. 
That's another story, but he was a, a powerful man there and stood against uh, oppression even there as a slave in the bottom of a ship. And so much more so when he came back to Scotland and led the Reformation in that country. He stood like a granite pillar for the sake of justification by faith alone. He stood and he spoke against kings and councils and popes and cardinals, and he would not be swayed. And it's said that Mary, Queen of Scots, once remarked that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared all the assembled armies of Europe. It's not what John Knox feared. The story is told that on the day of his funeral, when his body was lowered into the grave, someone in the crowd spoke up and gave, gave this message. He said, here lies one who feared God so much, he never feared the face of man. What was the secret of John Knox's discipleship? That he feared the Lord. He revered him. He trusted him. That's what fear means, by the way. Don't, don't get uh, caught up in this false idea of what fear might look like. Some people would try to say, oh, we shouldn't fear God because that's like uh, being, you know, wondering if you're going to end up on, on Santa's naughty list. Fear of God isn't like waiting there to see if he's ticking this and, and ticking that box and making a judgment over you. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is a, is a product of the reverence that we give to God who made us, who provides for us, the one who has proven his love for us in Jesus. The fear of God comes from his mercy to us. It grows best in the soil of his fatherly care, and so Christ reminds us that our Lord watches us. He remembers us. He who does not forget the sparrows that can be had for a dime a dozen, he's not going to abandon the children for whom Christ died. That's the good, that's the God Jesus is calling us to fear, excuse me. He's the God who sent Christ to redeem his church as a beloved bride. He's the God who's paid the penalty for our sins and for our wavering discipleship. He's the God who counted it an eternal joy to win his people. And now he gives us the gift, in a sense. He gives us that fear of him that protects us from hypocrisy. It's by his spirit that we should revere him more than, more than the eyes of men. It's a gift of faith worked by him in his people. And so Jesus gives us this word of comfort. Fear not. Fear not those who can only kill the body. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not the flames of divine wrath, only fear God first. And stand boldly as, as his disciple in the world. That's the second lesson Jesus has to teach us today, that we ought to fear God first. Finally, Jesus teaches us the primary action that's going to display our discipleship in a watching world, and that is to confess Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what it means to live as an honest disciple. We confess Jesus Christ wherever we are and wherever the Lord has placed us, whatever situations we're facing, whatever temptations and pressures might be facing us, confess Jesus Christ. I wish that, the, wish that the ESV had retained the older language, and maybe you've got a different translation. And instead of that word acknowledge uh, in verse 10, is it? Verse 8, rather. 
Instead of acknowledge in verse 8, it uses the older language of confess. So the verse should read, I tell you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. It has more solemnity to it that way, I think. It ought to be more solemn. Confession is, is not something that we do flippantly, unthinkingly. Confession is something that we do consciously. It is an indictment. It is a clear admission that we are associated with someone or with something. Christ calls us to confess our sins. We, we take our sins, we say, yes, this is me. This is all of me. It comes from within. It's not some, uh, some outside force twisting my arm. We confess our sins. We say, oh Lord, I'm, I'm wicked and evil and my heart is deceitfully deceptive above all things. We confess, we acknowledge, we align ourselves. This is coming from me. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying about confessing him. We give an open acknowledgement, evidence that we cannot be separated from him. It's a confession. That's what Christ has in mind. It's about living in such a way that we leave no doubt about our association with Jesus. We confess Christ when we speak up to defend his name and his cause. We confess Jesus when we're willing to be numbered among his people, even when it's unpopular. Even in the world ties hateful names to Christians like bigot, and fanatic, and, and fundamentalist, and all those sorts of things that we don't want to be associated with, we say, even though you'll associate that with Christians, I am one with Christ. I am one of his. I will own him. I will name him. We confess Christ when we take a stand for his commandments. Not because they're convenient, but because they give glory to God. We confess Christ when we love and we serve other Christians, simply because they belong to Jesus, not because we're looking for the publicity that comes with our public compassion. That's what Jesus said. John chapter 13, he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does it mean to, to confess Jesus Christ? Well, actually, it's a, it's a whole person sort of thing. It's a confession that we make with our lips as well as with our lives. And we can't have one without the other. We can't, we can't think that we'll go into the world and we'll just be nice people and we'll wait for everybody to say, you're so nice, you must be a Christian, aren't you? I used to tease Jay when I lived across the street. I'd see him out there in the morning picking up trash and I'd say, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. He'd say, oh yes, that's me. It's tongue in cheek because that's sometimes the way that we treat it. If I just go through the world and I just do nice things and I'm just a kind person and I just clean up after myself and I just take care of everybody else around me, everybody will just be wonderful and, and in awe of the fact that I must follow Jesus when in fact they have no idea. Unless our profession matches our lives, unless our lips and our life are united. It's a whole person thing. It's a confession that we make. It's about living out evidence enough to be convicted of Christianity by a jury of our peers. It's cliche, but it's true. If Christianity were made illegal tomorrow, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's not legalism. This is the gospel we're talking about here. Jesus promises that everyone who confesses Christ before the eyes of men will be confessed by him when it really counts. This is not a quid pro quo. This is not a, I'll do this if you'll do that. 
This is something that reveals what's really in our hearts. See, that's the danger of, of dishonest Christianity, of a hypocritical Christianity, when we think we can downplay our faith in our lives or we can keep it in our hearts. No, you can't. If you have Christ in your heart, he will show up on your lips and in your hands and in your actions, the way that you treat others. It will come bubbling up like a spring that can't be contained and it just rises from the ground and you try to put a rock on it it finds another way to come out. This reveals who we are. And Christ says, if you will confess me, I will confess you. I will confess you when you stand before the one who reveals the secrets and the whispers of the hearts of men. I will confess you when you stand before the God who has authority to kill and to cast into hell. If we will confess Christ with our lives, he will confess us with his. Before the judgment seat of God, his righteousness will be counted as ours. His death will stand in our place, and we will be joined to his resurrection life for eternal ages. This is meant to be a promise to fortify your hearts, dear Christian. To encourage you to follow him. And to do so honestly and visibly. Jesus is not going to forget the scores of Christians who have been ridiculed and persecuted and even killed for belonging to him. This is a promise of his enduring justice. This is a, an encouragement to press on invisible, tangible, observable discipleship despite whatever opposition might rise against you. Whoever confesses Christ before men will be confessed by him before the angels of God. But there is a warning. The warning is that hypocrisy is not a harmless sin. If we deny Christ in this life by refusing to be named among his followers, if that is what we choose, he promises to ratify our choice for eternity. And those who deny him will be denied. I think it helps to understand, to explain that, that often misunderstood verse, uh, verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You see, there were many who spoke against Christ and his humanity. I don't know if you noticed, but today in Acts chapter 3, Paul said clearly, I'm sorry, Peter said clearly, you denied the author of life. You killed the author of life. You denied the Christ. He uses that word here denial. And yet he presses them to come and to be forgiven. As it says elsewhere, that they acted in ignorance. That's what he said in, verse three, in chapter 3 of Acts. He said, I know you acted in ignorance, and so turn again. And so we see it happening throughout the book of Acts, at the preaching of the apostles. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 tells us the word of God continued to increase, and a great many, even of the priests, became obedient to the faith. Pharisees too, men like Paul who railed against Christ and tried to destroy his church, found forgiveness because they turned. Yet there were others who saw the power of the Spirit poured out. There were others who heard the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. And they were confronted with the revelation of Jesus Christ and his, his resurrection, and what did they do? They hardened their hearts. 
They took the gospel message that they, they knew to be true and they stuffed it down into those deep calcified recesses of hardened hearts. And they said, I will not acknowledge, I will not come, I will not repent. Perhaps they decided that it would be too costly. Maybe they were unwilling to bear the reproach of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was too much to be counted as one of his. But whatever the reason, just as we confess Christ with our lips and our lives, so also do many men and women, boys and girls, completely flatly deny the work of the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness for sins through him. And how can there be forgiveness for such denial? How can they repent if they refuse the Spirit who calls? How can they receive life if they refuse the Spirit who gives the gift of faith? How can they find forgiveness if they will not hear, if they will not listen, if they will not turn? Folks, one thing is for sure. All the the best commentators say exactly the same thing because it is a question that comes up over and over again in the church. Those who are afraid of having committed the unforgivable sin are those who have not committed it. This is a whole person hardening. This is an insensitivity toward the Spirit of God. And if you are still sensitive, it's a sign that your discipleship is still in process. You may be weak, you may be wavering, you may sometimes be tempted to hide it and to bury it so others may think better of you. And that's a sin for which we ought to repent, even if we have denied Christ, like Peter denied Christ, calling down, uh, calling down invectives upon himself and curses upon himself, we can turn. Even as he turned and, and spoke to those who were there and said, you denied him, but, but turn again. You acted in ignorance. Repent. So also we can come and find repentance and forgiveness for our dishonest discipleship. For those who are still sensitive, there remains a promise in this passage that by the Spirit of God, you can be a John Knox. Not a reformer, maybe not a a professor, maybe not not a pastor, not a leader of the church, but you can be one who fears God rather than men. It's the promise that Jesus makes here. By the Spirit, you can choose to speak for Christ no matter the threat of ridicule and snickering peers. By the Spirit of God, Christ's people can stand without deceit and without hypocrisy, without an attempt to hide. And he promises that he'll teach you the words you ought to speak. He promises that he will fulfill exactly what he demands of you. Not to get you off the hook, by the way. That's not the promise. The promise is not to make men think better of you or to to give you an out so that they won't ridicule you. The promise is to give you a word to speak of Christ, to make your discipleship honest and visible. That's what Jesus wants from his people, and that's what he promises he will do. So let us expect that all these things will be disclosed at the last day and fear the Lord first of all. Let us be people who confess Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you. You are the one who gives us these promises, not because we deserve them, because you are the one who has chosen us for the foundation of the world in love in Jesus Christ, that we should become a kind of first fruits of your gospel. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us fruitful, that others would see and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because you are giving a witness through us and through our discipleship. Oh, Lord, would you do it? For the sake and the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.